0: Hi, this is DebtWire Managing Editor, Andrew Ragsley, and we are up to episode 13 of our DebtWired series.
1: This episode features Deputy Editor, Reshmi Basu, speaking with Rick Cazole and Chuck Moore of Alvarez & Marsal. Rick is a Managing Director who is Senior Leader in the firm's Global Automotive, Aerospace and Defense, and Industrials team. Chuck is also a managing director who operates in a and North American Restructuring Division. Since both of our guests are based out of Detroit and have been recognized for their work in the automotive space, spending the course of 25 years, our conversation focuses on transformation taking place in that industry, where issues like the chip shortage, cost structure challenges, and consolidation are shaping the future.
2: Chuck and Rick, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Rashmi. Thank you. Can you give us an overview of the auto industry and what challenges does the industry face?
0: You bet. So, um, you know, to the question, you know, an overview of the industry and what challenges it faces. I mean, it's a large global industry, as many of you know. Um, It's probably the most globally integrated industry um, from a manufacturing standpoint. Uh, of any significant size. It's, uh, you know, the engineering centers are global, so the cars that you're, the cars and trucks that you're driving today are engineered in a global fashion, sometimes 24-7. Um, the supply base is sourced globally. Um, most of the large, you know, um, suppliers that supply the global OEMs, meaning the, the end product aspect of it, original equipment manufacturers, and that... Um, may be located or headquartered in India, but have operations globally. So it's a large, very integrated supply chain, but most of the items that you have, uh, that you drive that are typically produced uh, in region. I mean, there are uh, imports and exports, not like it used to be. Um, and uh, as you see in the news, when you have shortages, um, things start to hiccup around the world. Uh, any thoughts there, Chuck, before I go into issues?
1: No, I I would agree, Rick. Just in terms of the magnitude of the industry, I think some people may not realize we're dealing with a multi-trillion dollar industry globally, and it does tend to impact pretty much every aspect of manufacturing and and supply chains globally. So it's uh, just a massive industry.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the primary issues that it's facing right now is, as you see, this large pivot from internal combustion to electric vehicles, the push for that, you know, that's disrupting the both the OEMs themselves and, and the supply chain. A pile on top of that, you know, increases in raw material prices and obviously COVID. Uh, it's challenging times.
1: I think people are still trying to figure out exactly where the industry is heading. We hear a lot about the migration to electric, as well as autonomous and shared vehicles. And you can get the sense that these things are upon us right now. But then you hear about some of the timing associated with these things. And people are talking 2030, 2040. So they think that Really, it's not going to be for a while, but in this industry, we are seeing dramatic changes right now that are setting the stage for the eventual full or nearly full adoption of these technologies. So all of the activities that are occurring right now, the strategic moves that are taking place at both the OEM as well as the supplier level are mammoth. And they are big bets that companies are having to make right now to position themselves for these technologies that are, in some ways, as in electric vehicles, really accelerating, uh, but with some of the other ones may take a little bit longer to fully adopt.
0: Fully concur. It's um, unprecedented and that's called the ambiguity that management faces. And Uh, which direction to take, how fast and how much.
2: There doesn't seem to be a lot of distress in the space. Why is that? And do you expect this to change?
1: You know, Reshmi, I think when people talk about distress, most often they're thinking about financial distress. And you're right. At this point, there's really not a whole lot of distress in the industry when you think about it from liquidity and debt defaults. However, there's a tremendous amount of operational distress right now. One of the primary items causing operational distress that you read about pretty much every day relates to the shortage of chips, uh, microprocessors, which have become so pervasive throughout the vehicle. But there are a number of other operational items that don't get as much publicity that suppliers in particular Are having to deal with on a daily basis. One of those relates to the input costs and the raw materials that are used to produce component parts that will then go into a vehicle. Not only have we seen significant price increases in a number of the materials that are used more and more in in vehicles, such as with resins that go into plastic component parts but also some of the uh, at one point you would refer refer to them as rare commodities but are more and more important especially as you look at the progression of electric uh, electric vehicles those the availability of those materials is challenged then on top of that you have all of the supply chain disruptions that have occurred that have limited the flow of materials, especially within different world areas. So you have suppliers and OEMs that are not able to get the materials when they need them, where they need them. And then lastly, there have still been challenges on the labor front related to the pandemic. A lot of suppliers are dealing with shortages of labor. There was a time Call it just about a year ago, when the industry started to resume activity on a global basis, this would have been in May of 2020, where labor was a real concern. But most people thought that those issues would go away uh, after the supply chain got up and running. Here we are a year later, and a lot of suppliers they would say one of their biggest issues is finding labor in order to be able to run at the pace that they need to run. You take it all together, and I would say suppliers in particular right now are working as hard as in any period of distress that I've seen just to make sure that they are able to produce what needs to be produced to ship to the OEMs. And on top of that, I'll just add one last item. Just the volatility in production, primarily as a result of the chip shortage, OEMs are announcing plant shutdowns all the time right now. A plant may be down for a week or it may be down for three months. Suppliers have to adapt to that and change, immediately reduce their costs, but also make sure that they are still in a position to ramp back up as soon as production of a plant that they may be shipping to resumes. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult time right now from an operational standpoint, but certainly balance sheets tend to be very strong, especially in the supply base. So we're not seeing financial distress. We're not seeing, uh, but for a few cases, very many defaults or certainly bankruptcy filings.
0: So, Chuck, I'll, I'll add here just real quick and, you know, just on the macro sense, you know, let's not all forget, you know, the auto industry has had its ups and downs in the past. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of companies that have been, uh, you know, kind of beat up financially and operationally over the past 25, 30 years. So, you know, the, the people, and the veterans of the industry uh, know that, you know, they have to protect for risk, both operationally and for risk. And so I, I think that the The purview of always kind of, you know, looking at um, the good times, but also with a rear view uh, mirror into some of the challenges of the past also helps with the call that astuteness with regard to the risk.
2: Why have the OEMs and the suppliers been able to access the capital markets?
1: Uh, I'll go ahead and take the lead on this, uh, Rashmi. This is an interesting item that has changed quite a bit in the last 12 months historically companies in the auto industry are not very attractive to investors and that's both equity and debt investors the industry overall tends to be low margins very capital intensive and that just in and, and because of the volatility that Rick has mentioned that has occurred over the last 25 to 30 years in particular, but going back decades. Investors have been burned a number of times in the industry and so valuations tend to be low. And the the companies that operate in the industry historically have not been able to access the capital markets as other high growth companies may be able to. The last 12 months, however, we've seen quite a change. Companies that Went into the pandemic, very concerned about preserving liquidity. All of a sudden, be they were able to access the capital markets and really gain access to amounts of capital that they would not have expected. And what we've seen as part of that, one, I think, just the overall open- openness of the capital markets has had an impact on that, but also. You have seen some companies whose valuations have taken off. And so in 2020, certainly everyone is aware of what happened with Tesla's stock price at some points up 700%. But then we had a whole bunch of SPACs that specifically were focused on auto tech with tremendous valuations. And as people took a further look, as investors took a further look at the industry, it started to realize that some of the legacy OEMs and suppliers not only were making tremendous advances with their own technology, but they were going to be critical players, they are going to be critical players with all of the new technological revolutions going on. And so we've seen now at the OEM level, as an example, GM stock has really taken off because it has done such a great job of conveying a very cohesive strategy as it relates to electrification of the powertrain. Some of the large tier one suppliers also have had significant run-ups in their stock because it's becoming more clear their place in this future auto segment. So, that has certainly been a a, a benefit to the industry. I do believe however, going forward, it will still be a challenge for both OEMs and suppliers to be able to raise the capital that they need to be able to deal with the issues that they're dealing with right now from an operational standpoint, but also to reinvest in the strategic initiatives that they have to fund In order to make sure that they are a player in this current technological revolution.
2: More recently, one of the large car makers slashed its planned production this year due to the semiconductor shortage. What does the chip crisis mean for auto production and profitability?
0: Well, uh, I'll take this one. You know, Chuck, you you know, Ford recently announced the chip shortages may impact 2021 profits by as much as the you know, two and a half billion, right? And uh you know, that's just one OEM uh globally, not the, not the least of which, you know, uh more to mention, you know, the rest of the supply base. So I mean it, it, it's gonna it's gonna have a negative impact uh on it. You know, the OEMs, you know, do have a little bit of flexibility to shift production or you know, uh or make choices, you know, that production. Um, to to higher margin vehicles uh, and the like, but as you cascade down into the supply base, um, that flexibility tends to diminish. So, um, you know, it's obviously a large impact at the the higher level, at the OEM level, but it's gonna cascade down to tier one, tier two, uh, and even tier three, um, you know, supplier level uh, with it. And I, I think, that you know what you'll see coming out of this obviously is a look back at you know how did it happen where was the where was the risk management where was the supply base management not just from the OE aspect of it you know but cascading all the way down to the supply base I think you're going to see um, also you know shifting and you know perhaps um, you know the mindset of you know if we have a shortage in chip production is there anything else out there. And so a revisit, you know, of the, the supply base strategies uh, of the OEMs and major tier ones, you know, to reduce that exposed risk in select places. So I think, one, you're going to see the overall impact, obviously, drain on the industry a little bit. Two, I think that you're going to see a revisit to, you know, the stringent, you know, supplier risk management strategies, you know, cascaded down from the OEMs and tier ones into to the smaller supply base. Uh, and, you know, risk reduction mechanisms. So one, it doesn't happen again. And then two, I think you're going to see, um, you know, looks at other types of areas of the supply base where they may be at risk. Uh, and that may be looking at, you know, dual production, but it may be looking at uh, repatriation of some products, um, et cetera. So, and I think that's probably, you know, the main impacts. One's overall profitability, but, uh, you know, the actions. Um, you know that that will be instituted. You know, we're already going; that are already in process now, and will continue into the future.
2: How is this impacting the relationship between OEMs and tier one or tier two suppliers?
1: I'll jump in there, and I want to leverage one of the items that Rick just mentioned because I think it is so interesting. As Rick mentioned. Getting visibility all the way through the, su- the supply chain is something that some OEMs have done better than others in the past. Generally speaking, all OEMs are very good at knowing their direct suppliers. So when I say knowing their suppliers, I mean, they know exactly what it costs for supplier X to produce component part A. What some OEMs have not done in the past, though, is extend that visibility. Supplier X may have suppliers D, E, and F supplying to it. And there wasn't as good a visibility on the risk management practices, the the exposure that the OEM may face as a result of some of the practices of those lower tier suppliers. What makes it even more interesting is that we have all of a sudden a convergence now of another issue which relates to really all of the ESG momentum that is occurring. And it is now becoming more critical than ever for OEMs as well as the large tier one suppliers to have visibility all the way down, all the way through the supply chain, not only to make sure that risks are being managed, but also to ensure that each one of those suppliers is practicing various operating procedures and just how it performs as a company that is consistent with the ESG goals that have been laid out by a number of the OEMs in large tier one suppliers. So this is likely only going to increase. That visibility all the way through the supply chain is not an easy task. And there are tremendous amounts of resources that are being thrown at this, especially at the OEM level. But even within the tiers, uh, the supplier tiers as well, to make sure that there are no surprises, and they once they identify risks, that they properly plan for uh, those risks, and as Rick said, take action.
2: Besides the chip shortage, the industry is also undergoing seismic changes, given the move towards autonomous, connected, electric, and shared cars. How capital-intensive is this transformation? Well, I mean, it's,
0: it's massive. I mean, you look at, you know, announcements from like, just take example, the Hummer plant with General Motors. I and mean, you know, I don't have the figure right in front of me, but I think it was two, two and a half billion in investment in the hand tremor plant to produce um, uh, the new Hummer. And then I don't know how much is included in the, in the other variant of the truck, you know? So, um, you know, tremendous capital is going to be needed, you know, for this transition. And, um, you know, it's mainly concentrated in the driveline areas, you know, so, uh, you know, you're removing the internal combustion engine and then the driveline and you're inserting something else. Um, you know, but, you know, it will drive, you know, over time, it will drive different aspects and feature and function, you know, throughout the vehicle, uh, as well as you see now with the new F-150 Lightning and the cargo capacity in the front. So that requires, you know, different tooling. So, you know, over the next six to seven years, um, obviously tied to the, the product launch timelines, uh, you're going to see massive capital investment. And that's just not at the OE level, right? Uh, you have to tool up all the way down through the supply base. And so, you know, that efficient, that efficient employment of that capital, um, meaning the you know, getting more for what you're putting in, you know, is going to be very paramount, uh, to the entire supply chain as we go forward.
1: One thing that I would add on to that is the technologies that will be the winning technologies in each of these areas are not yet known. People speak about electric vehicles. Well, there are different types of electric vehicles. Are we talking about battery electric? Are we talking about hydrogen fuel cells? And even as it relates to autonomous Are we talking about LiDAR? Are we talking about cameras? So OEMs are pursuing multiple strategies in each of these areas. But then when you look at the tier suppliers that have to keep up with this, especially some of the technology-focused tier one suppliers, they're having to make bets which OEMs are going to be more successful than others, which technologies Are going to be the ones that end up being used more than others. There's just not enough capital to invest in all of these areas. And so companies have to make bets, and those bets may be the determining factor of whether a company ends up surviving and being a major player or eventually has to be wound down or sold because. It has legacy technologies that are not being used.
0: And Chuck, I want to add on to that. I mean, you have the, you know, the pinch point of where, um, let's say, you know, a major tier one in, in uh, you know, engine or drive line where you're still trying to produce the current product, you know, out for a number of years, but you're trying to, try to invest in the new technologies as well. So, you know, it's a double whammy in the sense that it isn't just a bet. You're also, you know, trying to to maintain a launch against a current platform,
1: you know? Yep, absolutely.
2: What does this mean for the cost structure?
1: Well, I'll I'll just jump in on that. It's very interesting how the costs to assemble a vehicle are changing. Electric vehicles, as an example, have only about 10% of the parts of an internal combustion engine. So that makes the vehicle... Simpler and there's less cost just from the standpoint of fewer component parts. However, there's significantly more technology, and those component parts are more expensive in an electric vehicle than internal combustion. The cost per kilowatt hour continues to come down and is getting very close to the point where there's not a difference between an internal combustion engine and an electric vehicle. So with that said, though, we know that prices for vehicles are set by the market. And while some consumers may be willing to pay a little bit more for an electric vehicle, the OEMs know that they have to be able to produce vehicles that people want to buy at costs where they can make a profit. And that's where there's been a big change in the last couple of years. As those costs have come down, you're now starting to see profit margins on electric vehicles, but also the other costs are changing. There's less and less labor, direct labor involved, but a lot more, as an example, coders that are uh, existing at the OEMs. Ford just announced at its investor day that it will be sending a, a tremendous number of vehicles about a million vehicles on the road right now with over-the-air updates. That's something that OEMs have to invest in heavily because they know that that is the direction of where things are going. So the, the costs are really changing quite a bit. There's pressure on making sure that they can do this profitably, but they're having to figure out how to incorporate a lot of new costs that weren't there just even three to five years ago.
0: And, you know, Chuck, I'll, I'll just add, you know, uh, you know, to that. I mean, in general, you know, an OE, you know, runs in the, you know, low single digits, mid single digits as the cost for the cost structure and direct labor. And so, you know, it's not a massive, you know, drop uh, in the overall cost structure when you're removing, um, you know, that part of the direct labor, but you're adding on this other kind of called technology labor. Uh, with it, It's significant. Now, you have to cascade it, again, back down to the supply chain. Um, and if you look at the other technology that's going into the vehicle, um, you know, you're going into, for example, LiDAR, radar, you know, lots of other sensing devices and, you know, over the air um, with it. You know, that's a different type of, you know, part and products that were not previously in the vehicle um, uh, with it. But we also have to talk about technology, you know, in the, uh, in the manufacturing assembly parts uh, of the supply chain, you know, with the, the onset and the reduction of lots of sensing technology, you know, automation and inspection continuing to increase. So, you know, the, that, that movement of the cost structure uh, is coming from one area and going into another, uh, the whole point there.
2: What kind of changes do auto suppliers have to make? Do they have to transform the factories
0: um certainly if uh, they're, they're, what they provide to the OEs is changing you know uh, i mean I mean there's lots of evolution of vehicles you know over time if you look back if you look at the content uh, in a seat the engineered content I'm saying within a seat with occupant sense it's no longer just a uh, padding with leather in a frame, right? You have the C-Track that moves, you know, every every which way. You've got heating and cooling technology. You've got sensing technology. You've got massaging chairs, airbags, you know, etc. cetera. And so, you know, uh, the entire supply base continues to evolve around technology. When we talk more around the movement away from uh, the ice aspect of it, um, you know, some Some companies are making the pivot and being part of the, let's call it, the the new vehicle architectures, whether it be EV or uh, hydrogen electric, you know, et cetera. And, yeah, you know, they have to retool. And it goes back to the question we had earlier, you know, is it costly? Absolutely it's costly. And it it takes capital. Um, So, you know, it's transformative um, all the way down through the supply chain.
1: I think that in the end, this is really where the rubber hits the road, no pun intended, in this industry at the supplier level. There will always be suppliers that just produce component parts and ship them. But especially at the tier one level, there's a significant push right now to figure out what the place is for these companies and what they need to do to get there. Almost without exception, most of the large tier one suppliers have come out. They've had to come out to explain to the street what they are doing to participate in this evolution that's going on, really more of a revolution that's going on in the auto industry. And it's going to take significant actions. There's going to be a tremendous amount of M&A activity. There There already has been, especially around technology. But I think you're going to see a lot of suppliers getting out of different component part segments, even though they can be profitable for some period of time. It's just not going to be strategic. They're going to need to concentrate their resources on areas where they can win long term. So this is where Rick and I are spending a lot of our time right now with suppliers. And I think that this is really the name of the game for suppliers for at least the next five years, but potentially the next 10 years.
2: Will the industry be able to generate cash? Or is this a cash burn story as companies need to make sizable investments?
1: I think maybe just building off of what I just indicated, there's going to be a lot of M&A activity here. And that may even be at the OEM level. OEMs have realized that they don't have the resources that they need to compete for in this long-term mobility-as-a-service play. You have technology companies that have tremendous balance sheets. That have come into the place. We know about Google with Waymo that's existed for well over a decade now. Apple continues to be a player here beyond just some of the technology that it's done with CarPlay. There are rumors that Apple is looking at partnering with someone as it relates to the assembly of the vehicles. As this industry, the as the disruption continues to become more clear and it attracts non-traditional players like amazon investing in rivion with the delivery vehicles um who knows what might happen with uber or lyft and how that plays into a a, a bigger play here there's no question that companies will have to figure out what their place is and who their target customers are going to be. So we're going to see companies shedding business units, shedding plants in order to free up capital, in order to invest where they need to. In some ways, that will also be challenging because as companies change their business models, especially at the supplier level, it's likely that their manufacturing footprint and their engineering technical centers of excellence may change and how they either shut down plants, how they move plants will be a very significant challenge that they will have to deal with through these changes. Some areas of the world that's easier to do than others, but these are challenges that are impacting suppliers and are upon them right now.
2: So for the industry to survive, will there be consolidation or asset divestors?
1: I would say the industry is really poised to thrive. I don't think it's a matter of the industry itself, a question of survival, but it is a significant question for a lot of companies. When you look at even the conservative estimates indicate that 25% of the vehicles sold in the U.S., will be electric vehicles by 2030. And some estimates have a much higher amount. For companies that generate a significant amount of their revenue from internal combustion engine sales, that means that 25% or more of their revenue base will go away. So you do have suppliers that are going to be fighting for survival. And along the way, there are going to be I think some big transactions which will involve consolidation in certain segments, but also I think that you'll see more financial players uh, in particular equity funds, financial sponsors coming in to consolidate some of the older technologies that are not going away completely. And that I think people will be able to have business models that allow them to be profitable For quite some time, I mean, realistically, you could run sales of certain internal combustion engine parts for the next thirty to forty years. You just have to set yourself up so that you can ride that wave down effectively. So there will be consolidation. There will be a lot of M and A activity, and I think that there are going to be uh, parties rushing in that are not in the industry right now because they'll see that they can pick up some remnants and still have a good business model from those.
2: Do you expect to see repatriation in the industry? Uh, short answer is
0: yes. You know, I think, you know, the past, you know, 15, 18 months has exposed some of the challenges with the global supply chain and uh, maybe some of the the cost structure advantages of, you know, offshore. Amb- I'm talking in particular here from the United States to low-cost Regions is changing, you know, and that, you know, you know, over time, you know, labor tends to uh, increase in those areas. But uh, also the labor content is starting to reduce, too, with with automation. So when you take that and combine it with, uh, you know, potential increases in transportation costs, I think you've, you'll you see select repatriation. You know, I mean, you, you have to combine that with the investment in the, the future. Um, uh, in the future technology requirements and development. But I think you'll see it in you know in select areas. Certainly, And I, th- I think you're hearing about some of it already. Now, from an OE standpoint, likely not. I think you're still getting with the, the push to you know, local and regional assembly. I think that'll stay. But I think um, from supply, uh, you'll see some in select
1: areas.
2: Where are valuations going? How are investors sizing up the space?
1: As I indicated earlier, it's been very interesting to see after the 2020 run-up in Tesla, as well as the numerous auto tech-related SPACs and some of the success that they've had, we've now seen in late 2020 into 2021, some of the legacy OEMs and suppliers really having nice runs with the with their stock price and obviously then valuation of the company. Even with that, however, this industry tends to be valued at the low end. And so you have companies like GM that's valued at, you know, a six times type of multiple, where if you end up seeing the technology come through, And where things are expected to go, which is the content, the data that these companies will get access to from all of the users of vehicles and other forms of mobility. I think that the valuations could really skyrocket. I could be wrong there, but when you look at some of the other technology sectors, that have had massive run-ups, the auto industry could be poised for that. Now, the, the legacy OEMs and suppliers have n- never been known as technology companies, but with this convergence, it's possible that you could see a significant pickup in some of the winners. At the same time, I think that you will likely see added pressure, especially at the supplier level, For those that are not able to articulate a vision to investors about how they are going to play in these areas that we talked about, electric, autonomous, connected, and shared, um, or are not able to convey what their strategic plan is going forward.
2: What advice are you giving your auto clients?
0: Hmm. Uh, We can't... (laughs) Can't get too detailed on that one, but we can talk, you know, from a macro perspective, you know, for the industry uh, and like, you know, I'd, I'd if I, you know, look at it from each of the the segments, meaning you know, OE and, and supplier, you know, primarily in the supplier side is, you know, if if you haven't, you know, uh, taken out your strategic plan and and, and taking that it's typically a five to t- you know a three to five year look, but more of a ten year look. You probably should. Um, it's not too late. It's not too late to start um, for it, and you know, combining that with the potential capital uh, that you're going to need to expend to understand where you need to address your cost structure uh, to be continue to be lean and efficient uh, around that. You know, and you know, we've seen a little bit of this rush into the technology, and it in some cases doesn't quite have the cost focus that, you know, the auto industry is traditionally known for. And so, you know, counsel there is, you know, as you're, as we're making this pivot that, um, you know, reaching down to different types of suppliers, you know, in different types of technology to maintain the traditional, you know, cost acumen that the industry is, is known for, because you're going to need it, which leads into the, you know the cash management part of it of you know really you know focusing on cash and maximizing it in order to be able to invest uh, in the future i think those would be the you know the top ones
1: yeah i i would stress the cost takeout that you mentioned rick uh, that obviously is an area that i tend to focus on more than anything this is a popular item right now for suppliers With all of the production volatility, all of the issues around input costs, labor constraints, suppliers that are being very aggressive as it relates to cost takeout strategies are on a very good path. Others, there's no question we've seen some complacency with how strong some balance sheets tend to be they are less motivated to be very aggressive on the cost takeout side, even though they may be only marginally profitable or even operating in a, at a slight loss right now with some of these operational issues that they're dealing with. And I think that those are the companies that are likely going to end up on target lists for restructuring advisors very soon. So the, the aggressive cost takeout footprint rationalization, and overall operational efficiency to figure out how to fund and then move into what the longer-term strategic plan that Rick focused on is really key.
0: Leave no stone unturned.
1: Exactly.
2: On that note, we're going to end it. Thank you so much for being with us.